0: Now, Paul has already talked about himself, who he is, he identified himself um, and um, his relationship to God, his relationship uh, to his addressees in Rome. He talked about uh, the Romans as well, his desire to be with them, to mutually benefit from one another's gifts. Uh, he's talked about the gospel already, although we only covered 14 verses. He has mentioned the gospel again and again. And now we come to what is considered to be the theme verses of uh, the entire book, verses 16 and 7. And in your outline, it's it's identified as Paul's transition or theme. We call it a transition or a bridge because he uses this uh, phrase or these verses here to move into the major uh, body of his letter. Let's read this again, please. Paul's transition or theme of the book of Romans, verses sixteen and seventeen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation through everyone who believes. To do first and also to Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. Powerful words. This actually is one of the first uh, these were the first verses I memorized as a believer. Romans 1, 16 and 17 because Romans is the first book I really studied as a whole book. And um, I think I told you before I actually studied the whole book on my knees. Actually it's not because I was that holy or anything but because while I was living I didn't have a table so I had to put it on the bed. And I had to get up early in the morning before my sister got up because we used to live in the same room with a blanket between us. And she didn't like to have the light on, you see. So I had to get out on the floor every morning to do the study. But uh, this is a tremendous uh, book here. As I mentioned last time in our last lecture, this was the section in the Book of Romans that caused Martin Luther uh, to as we say today, to uh, initiate the reformation. When he came across this truth, the righteous shall live by faith. It's a tremendous passage, and I hope as we go through this gospel, you will get a true understanding of the righteousness of God and the power of the gospel as well. And the fact that our relationship with God is based on His grace, not our works. I'll talk about it in a moment. In these two verses, then, Paul gives a clear and concise and strong statement of the great doctrine which he plans to clearly and logically establish in the preceding chapters. The doctrine of justification by faith. Salvation by grace. That's the gospel. And that's what Paul is doing in this book, the book of Romans, explaining justification by faith what is righteousness imputed to us because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and that's why I say it's the power of God unto salvation you see and then he gives seven great facts concerning the gospel and as I say throughout the book you'll see Paul talking about the gospel the gospel the gospel he gives seven great facts he gave some others we talked about if you look in your notes you'll see But here's the first one. He describes his personal attitude toward the gospel first of all. He says, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. And he says four things. He's not ashamed in not only here but in other writings. He's not ashamed to believe the gospel. He's not ashamed to confess the gospel. He's not ashamed to suffer for the gospel. He's not ashamed now in verse 16, to preach the gospel. Paul's attitude toward the gospel was a complete sellout to it, a complete commitment to it. And his commitment made him to always be ready to um, explain the gospel. He was not ashamed to talk about Jesus Christ. If you read these passages we give here Acts 96, 1 Corinthians 2, second Corinthians 11, and the words you're looking at, and read the context behind it, you'll become amazed at this man and how he was so totally sold out to the gospel in every area of his life. Intellectually, he was willing to believe the gospel, although To so many it seems so simple, to others it seems so profound, to others it seems so foolish. But he was not ashamed to believe it. He was not afraid to talk about it, to suffer for it. He was willing to to pay any cost in order to preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his attitude toward it, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And he explains a little bit why he was not ashamed to preach it. First, he was not ashamed to preach it because it is the power of God. That word power comes from the Greek dunamis, where we get the word dynamite. But I like to use, rather than dynamite, to say we get the word dynamo. The reason why I like to make that difference is because with dynamite, you use a piece of stick of dynamite once, it's gone. It's finished. But a dynamo is something that continually generates power. It goes on and on and on. And that's the gospel. It continually generates the power of God. We can always draw upon it because it has inherent within it the life of God. The word of God, the gospel, is alive. That's what it means in King James when it says it is quick. It is alive. It is the power of God. That's a general description. Then he goes on, he says he's not ashamed to preach it because it is the power of God unto salvation. Now he's specific. Unto salvation. It affects something. It brings about something. It brings about the salvation of mankind. Now that word salvation is another important word. It's used throughout scripture in different ways. It means to save one's life physically means to save one's reputation. The word, uh, this word for salvation is used in many different ways. But here, when it's used in relation to the gospel, it has to do with what we call spiritual salvation. Salvation from the wrath of God. Being saved from the wrath of God. Being saved from eternal damnation. Being saved from separation from God eternally. That's why he was not ashamed to preach it. Because it was the power, it was the dynamo of God that brings about salvation from the wrath of God. He's going to describe what that means in a minute. But then the third thing, he's not ashamed to preach it, not only because it's the power of God and the salvation, but also because it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes it. This is personal now, you see? To everyone who believes, no one is left out according to this passage here. So he's not ashamed to preach it to Jew or Gentile, to poor or rich. No matter what ethnic background, economic background, no matter what. The gospel could be preached because to everyone who believes it, that person is given life, new life, that person is saved. And so he's not afraid to preach it. Because the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes it. And of course, the question goes out here, are you one of those ones? He, he talks a little bit more, or we could describe the gospel a little bit more, and that's what I want to do. My numbering here is wrong. I shouldn't have put an A to the power of God here. So if you want to make a correction, you could put an A under the effect of it, but it doesn't matter that much. All right, the effect of the gospel its unto salvation. And the reason why it is unto salvation is because it is the power of God. Right? The effect of the gospel is unto salvation. It's just, just another way of looking at the gospel. The extent of the gospel is to everyone. No one is left out. And we're going to see this as we go through the book. It's to Jew and to Gentile. To everyone. The gospel is to proclaim, be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. All right? the exercise or the simplicity of it that's what we're talking about just now everyone that believes no work here you see believe has to do with faith the word believe is the idea of faith all right faith in the person that you are uh, informed about Um, the early plan of the proclamation of the gospel to the jew first study the scriptures even when Jesus came and he sent out the 70s, what was his command to them? Go to the Jews only, not to the Gentiles. Jesus came initially only to the Jews. All right? And even when the church started initially, it was to the Jews. You see? To the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. The evidence or the subject of the gospel is the righteousness of God Now this is a term that you really have to come to understand and to know. This term here, this doctrine, the righteousness of God, really is what brought about the Reformation. Because it was Martin Luther's understanding of what the righteousness of God was. And it became different, contrary to what the established church was teaching at that time. The, th- the three I ams in this passage. I'm giving you this because some of you all sometimes could use this in your, in your uh, Sunday school lesson when you preach, teach, or whatever it is. For you all who like these outlines. The three I ams here I am debtor. That speaks of his obligation in verse 14. I am debtor. You know, both to the Jews and to the Greeks. I am ready. That has to do with his preparation. I am debtor, obligation. I am ready, preparation. I am not ashamed, verse 16. That's his disposition or attitude. You could make a good message on that, a good sermon on that. I am debtor, I am ready, I am not ashamed. And all of this has to do with his relationship to the gospel. And as you go through this and you see Paul's Attitude toward the gospel. You know, we have to ask ourselves, do we have that same disposition? That same attitude? Do we feel obligated to tell people about Jesus Christ? Are you ready to do it at any time? You see? Or are you ashamed to do it? Tremendous challenges here. There are also three fours in this section. F-O-R-S, not F-O-U-R-S. Worse, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That explains his eagerness to preach it. He's not ashamed. Secondly, for it is the power of God. That explains the reason for his not being ashamed. It was the power, the dynamo of God that gives life. Actually, it's this power that provides the righteousness. You see? That's why we need to understand what the righteousness of God is. We need the righteousness of God to stand before him. What is it? Thirdly, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed, the righteousness of God. It shows that the reason for his attitude towards us was based upon the nature and practical outcome of the gospel. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed, manifested, exposed, exegeted. That's what that word revealed has to do with. Okay? It's the Greek word "apocalypse." It's the same word we use in the, in the, in the, in the, concerning the book of Revelation. When we talk about exegeting a passage, it's revealing the passage, exposing the passage, it's opening up the passage. That's what he says about the gospel. It opens up, it exposes, it reveals. The righteousness of God. Powerful. All right. Uh, we come now to the main, first main section of the book. Verses 16 and 17, the bridge, the transition from the introduction to the first section. This is the first section, am I right? Yeah. The first major section of the book. Remember now we have introduction. Verses 1 through 14. Then you have the transition. Verses 16 and 17. That we just looked at. That's the bridge to the main section of the book. And the first main section is condemnation. Condemnation. The wrath of God revealed. This goes from verse 18 of chapter 1 to verse 20 of chapter 3. That's the first major section. And so I say here, this section which we have entitled Condemnation presents a divine or heavenly scene. The world is on trial before God in the supreme court of the universe. God himself is a divine judge. He has issued a summons to the entire world to stand before him to answer his charge against them. The basis of his charge is between what he now sees them to be completely and absolutely morally and physically depraved and what they were created to be. And that was to glorify him through obedience to his revealed will and word. And so God brings the world to court to answer his charge against them. This is a, this is a heavenly court scene. That's why this book of Romans has been looked at as a legal document. It is, it is Paul's brief, as it were, concerning the world and God's relation to the world and how God corrected their, um, their condition before him. The question in this section, the question in this section from 118 to 320 is this is the world lost you could put another word is the world separated from god the answer to this question at the end of verse of, of verse 20 chapter 3 is yes the world is guilty before god now paul is going to lay out the condition the charges he's like the prosecutor now and he's going to tell the world where they are charged with by God, that he's representing. As creator and divine judge, God divides the world into two major ethnic groups, Jews and Gentiles. That's in this book. Both groups are allowed a hearing to answer the charge against them. And both plead not guilty to the charges. They are then given the opportunity to plead their case and offer the defense against the charge. However, after all has been said, their pleas and defense actually strengthened the divine charge against them, clearing the way for God to bring an absolute and unchanging verdict of guilty as charge against the whole world. That's the scene. That's where God the Spirit puts us in this book. All right? Now we're going to look at it in detail. That's the overview. The underlying message and the motive of this section is that mankind is in need of divine righteousness. That's what God is doing. Trying to show man. That don't sound right. They say God is trying to do something. Hey, it just do not sound right, right. Right, Liz? Right. The underlying message and motive of this section is that mankind is in need of divine righteousness. God is demonstrating that fact. The need, now notice, of divine righteousness. Yeah. I remember in the Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah, when God brought a charge against the children, he says, Your righteousness is what? As filthy rags. You see? And God is demonstrating here they are absolutely in need of his righteousness. All human beings lack righteousness. The righteousness that God demands. Which is, and here is, a, here is a one explanation of righteousness. All human beings lack righteousness, which is the status of having met all of God's ethical requirements for human beings. Righteousness is meeting all of God's moral demands. When you do that, you are righteous before God. You are right before Him. Righteousness simply means to be right. To be righteous, rather, simply means to be right. You're either going to be right with God or right with man. Or you could be both, of course. Or you could be right with God but not right with man. Or you could be right with God and not right with man. I'm not sure that's possible. But righteousness simply means to be right. The result is that they are under the wrath of God. In other words, if you don't have the righteousness that God requires, you are automatically under His wrath. And we've got to understand what wrath is. We're going to be dealing with that. We use these terms in a way that is not true to the word many times. The wrath of God is being revealed, we can find right now. You don't have to wait. To experience the wrath of God. If you don't have the righteousness of God right now. You are under the wrath of God. You see. We don't understand that. That's what God is trying to bring out here. So here is what you don't have. The meaning of righteousness. And this is sort of. I, I, this is sort of a summary. Because we don't have. We're going to be explaining some of it as we go along. We're going to be talking about. Imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is a concept in Christian theology that proposes that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to believers. Charged to the believer's account. In other words, treated as if it was theirs through faith. See, this is what the truth that Martin Luther got a hold of. Faith alone. The righteousness of God proclaimed in the gospel is received through faith alone in Christ alone. That's what caused him to be used of God in such a way to bring about what we call the Protestant Reformation. Without that truth being brought to his mind by the Spirit of God, you all won't be here today. You all will be in in St. Francis. All right? It is on the basis that this alien, now this word simply means something from outside. you want to use that word especially because you want to see this is something strange to man. This is something outside of man. This isn't something common. On the basis of this outside righteousness that God accepts humans, in other words, righteousness that comes to man from outside of man. It is foreign to man it is divine righteousness the righteousness of christ this acceptance is also referred to as justification to be made righteous before god through his imputation to us of god's or his righteousness in christ justifies us it makes us just it makes us just and so this doctrine is practically synonymous with justification by faith what we're saying here is that when you use the term justifying by, justification by faith, is the same as saying that God has charged to your account the righteousness of, his, of God or the righteousness of Christ. They mean the same thing as far as the Protestant is concerned. I'm going to show you why I say this in a moment. The teaching of imputed righteousness is a single or signature. It's a outstanding. It's the main doctrine of Lutheran and the Reformed Church. Because those are the ones who came originally from who? Martin Luther. Alright? In other words, the Lutherans and the Reformed people who came about as a result of the Reformation looked at righteousness of justification as being declared righteous. It's a legal pronouncement. You see what I'm saying? It's a legal pronouncement. God simply declares it to be so, even though it isn't so. All right? He declares it. Man isn't actually righteous in himself. But because the righteousness of Christ is being imputed to him, God sees the man through, as it were, the filter of Christ's righteousness. Now, here's why this is important for us to understand. The idea of justification by faith or imputed righteousness is in contrast to the Catholic's position as originally taught by Augustine who was the chief theologian for the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Protestants also claim Augustine for many other things, but Augustine was Roman Catholic's main theologian. Most of the doctrines... That the Roman Catholic uh, profess today has come from Augustine. In Augustine's view, God bestowed justifying righteousness upon the sinner in such a way, now notice it, it becomes a part of his or her person. You see the difference? This is referred to as infused righteousness. God infuses righteousness into the person. In other words, he's actually made righteous. In the other case, he's what? Declared righteous, although he isn't. Here, he's made righteous. You see? Now, he isn't made righteous in in this view of the woman Catholic, completely. He's made righteous in stages. First, he's given a certain amount of righteousness to help him to be righteous. Righteous. That means he's a little bit more faithful in uh, observing the 12 or so ordinances. Isn't that what you call it? The ordinances? No, not the ordinances. What is it called? The sacraments. The sacraments. And as he is faithful in them, he's infused more. And the more faithful he is, the more grace is infused to him, the more righteousness is infused in him, and it is completed after he dies, after the resurrection. That's when justification Actually and completely takes place. That's a complete difference to the Protestant. Protestant says, "No, God sees me as being righteous, right, and I am. I am declared righteous right now. I don't have to wait to go to heaven to to uh, have that righteousness. In Christ, I have it now." Roman Catholics and Protestants differ then in this important teaching here. Martin Luther saw this difference in the teaching. And that's what prompted him to be so bold in uh, uh, saying that it's true. Faith alone in Christ alone. All right, The first group that Paul deals with in the court here being charged by God, with being in need of righteousness, is the heathen. The heathen here means the Gentile world. Those who have never heard the law, had never being under the law this is in chapter 1 18 through 32 first he says the wrath of God is being revealed and I should put that in there I should have put it being revealed because actually it's in the present tense the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness this is what it says in verse 18 For the wrath of God, and you should put this in now, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Tremendous biblical concepts here. Wrath, revelation, ungodliness, unrighteousness. All those are tremendous uh, theological concepts here. Wrath describes God's present attitude towards sin in the world. Wrath. This is hot anger. Now, I don't want to go into it here, uh, but the two words that are used here concerning wrath, and one the powerful one is the word orge. Alright? And you see it in Different manifested in different ways at different times. We're gonna see in a moment where he says that the sinners are saving up wrath unto the day of wrath. In other words, the sinner has a bank account of wrath, and all of their disobediences against God, the unrighteous deeds, are deposited in his wrath account. And if they are not declared righteous through faith in Christ, all of those unrighteous, ungodly acts are going to mount up until finally in the coming day of judgment it will be poured out with interest. The only thing that can wipe it clean is when the sinner receives Jesus Christ by faith and God charges to his account the righteousness of Christ, then the wrath of God is washed away. Isn't that beautiful? What Paul is saying here, that the wrath of God is being now revealed through every, through, to everybody throughout the world. We pray for these sick people. That's an evidence of the wrath of God. Illness is the result of sin. You understand what I'm saying? All the disappointments, all the problems and everything we have the lack of peace, tranquility, and all of that that 's a sign of god 's wrath when that is removed we don 't have any of that. We have shalom, peace, the absence of pain, the absence of problems, the absence of sickness, the absence of difficulty that 's what shalom is that 's what peace is. We are experiencing the wrath of i 'm experiencing the wrath of God right now. I feel tired, i feel so what did I say, God, carry. I forgot what I got. But that's an evidence of the wrath of God being poured out upon sin. You understand what I'm saying? So we got to be careful when we look at Haiti and say that that well, Cain, not what it was earthquake, was it God's wrath upon them because of sin. Because look at yourself. What are you suffering from? What are you troubling from? What have you got problems with? What is aching, paining? That's the wrath of God. Now, the believer has the grace of God to help them to go through that. The unbeliever doesn't. So, even in the midst of all that pain, we could still experience some form of shalom, some some form of peace because of God's grace in our lives. You see. But the wrath of God is being revealed out all the time against sin that's what the earth is experiencing right now wrath is God's present attitude towards sin in the world that doesn't mean that's all we're saving it up like a bank account and we're gonna get it come against us if we are not protected through the righteousness of Christ alright? Now, he goes on to show that the wrath of God is deserved for rejecting or holding down the truth, which is God's light to them. God's light, God's revelation to mankind is the gospel. But it's also through his creation. You see? But he's going to show now, God is going to say now, I reveal myself to you, but you suppressed the light that I gave you. You didn't accept it. Verses 19 through 23. You you look at it in your Bible, I have it up here. First of all, he talks about the light of conscience. Which I describe as God's moral character. It's a reflection of God's moral character. In verse 19, he says, Because that, this is why they're rejected now. This is why their wrath is deserved. Because that which is known about God is evident where? Within them. That's man's conscience. For God made it evident. Now notice now, God made it evident. Not a preacher, not a teacher. God, well, it was a teacher, but God is a teacher. And even with God being the teacher, they rejected him. They turned it off. They turned away from it. They suppressed it. Now when you suppress something, what does it imply? You're holding it down, right? It's coming up. You know it's there. You know it's there. You know what it is, and you're suppressing it. You're holding it down. It's the picture of someone taking the heel and putting it on the head of a snake or an animal to hold it down. It wants to come up, but you're pressing it down. That's what man did with the light God gave to him to the conscience. And he's going to say about that, you know, when you did wrong, unrighteousness, something was it telling you that, no, 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 no. You see? But they suppressed it. They suppressed God's moral character demonstrated through the conference. But not only that. They rejected the light of creation. Which demonstrated God's being and power. Verse 20 says. For since the creation of the world. Notice this now. since the cre- creation of the world. There never was a moment. That man did not have the light of God. Never a moment. From the moment of creation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Isn't that amazing? That which is invisible that cannot be seen was clearly seen. That's creation. Being clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. They ain't got no defense, their mouths are shut. God's being and power was revealed. I'm starting to read a book that's come out recently by hawkins the uh ast- astrologer stephen hawkins he's supposed to be the brightest man alive huh and the other one is another another great uh uh another great scientist uh what they call these what do they call these real wise fellas? Um, oh, boy Okay. Who? I'm a, well, we're talking about Richard Dawkins. He's one of them too, but there's another guy. Um, oh boy, What's the, I'm trying to remember the name of the the area of study. Uh, it's right here, but it won't come out. Anyway, it's supposed to be the the the, the, the most um, brilliant minds who are involved in this. And uh, they come to finally come to the conclusion that everything they study is nonsense so they <laughs> so you can't understand it, but now these are supposed to be the the most outstanding guys. No, no, not the do No, these men are legitimate I mean these are legitimate these are the highest academic uh, academics you could get um but why can't get? What is the? You should know, Mom. What is the? Huh? No, it's on astrology. Huh? Real science? No. What's the word, man? It, it, for instance, when you are you're trying to say, it doesn't take. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know this and stuff like that. But it's a term like that. Anyway. They're coming to a conclusion now. Trying, they say science has advanced so much now that it shows that there's no need for God. You see, everything that is supposed to happen has been designed by to happen. That's why the planets go the way they go and buck up to one another and all of that because that's the way it was designed. Everything is already fixed. Well, you see, well, that's the point. They said you don't need anything. That's the way it is. Now, this is is this really the thing now, but he says, uh, the, 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 the thing that gets me th- about the whole thing, I'm trying to remember the exact quote, he's saying that uh, um, what we are finding out is that the thing that keeps all, whatever it is that keeps this thing going is nothing. And, and it was on Larry King, the two, the two scientists were on Larry King as well. And they spend 15 minutes talking about nothing. <laughs> Larry King asked him. He says, "What is the origin of nothing?" <laughs> now, you know, now this is these supposed to be intelligent people, right? What is the and they spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes talking about the origin of nothing. And I got to bring it to it because I want to use this illustration. I want to finish reading. But the whole thing he was trying to say it's like you you remember like you have um, dominoes have you all seen it where these fellas would create this magnificent thing out of uh, dominoes you know beautiful structure everything else and you look at it man it could be big as this room you know the whole thing filled up thousands and thousands of dominoes lined up and then all you had to do is. Flick one end of it, and all of it goes. And that's what he's saying that the universe is like. He says, through all these billions of years, it came into this order, some, and it started. And now it's just going. That's all. It's just, It's just going. You don't need brains. But they don't answer the question you ask. Who set the whole thing up in the first place? You see? But as they were talking, I thought about... Yeah, I I thought about the scriptures. The Bible says, "God hangs the earth on nothing." That's the word. God hangs the earth on nothing. So nothing is something. But that something is nothing you can see God hangs the earth on nothing and I was gonna ask them if I was there how do you think this fellow who said this thousands of years ago knew about this nothing you were talking about <laughs> it's just amazing but you all have to read it I to bring it for you this is an interesting book. To show you how these so-called... Co- and it comes to mind about the wise of the world, of foolishness in God's sight. And that's exactly what it is. These men, supposed to be so intelligent, yet you read one passage and you could destroy them just like that. Because it's so silly. It's so, But they don't see it. They don't see it. Anyway, the light of creation was rejected. But not only that... There's a rejection of divine light in verse 21-23 says, For even though they knew God, notice that, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations. That's exactly what's happening with Hawkins and those. They don't want to name God. They'll call Him everything else. But not God. They'll call Him nothing. They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's a wonderful description, well, it's a great description, of these guys I'm talking about, right here. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how they fit this picture to a T. You see? And this is why Paul is saying, on behalf of God, that God's wrath is deserved because of the rejection of God's light through conscience, through creation, and divine light given through the teaching of God himself. Because of this, this suppression of the truth, they are without excuse. They suppressed, they held down the truth. And they are without excuse. And that's what men and women are doing today, holding down the truth. That's why if there's any time we need a clear presentation of the Word of God, the gospel, it's now. Because it's the truth. The truth of God is revealed, manifested in the gospel. That's the only place you can find this divine truth. All right? Tremendous chapter here. Now, the result of man's rejection of divine light was threefold. First, idolatry. Second, sensuality. And thirdly, immorality. This is a result of the rejection of divine light. Whenever we reject truth, we always go into darkness. Alright? And immorality and, and uh, idolatry. Verses 21 to 25, talking about idolatry. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and the foolish heart was darkened, and so on. We read that before, but notice how the how notice the, the 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 gradual degradation when it comes to um idolatry professing to be wise they became fools notice now exchanged the glory of the incorruptible god for an image what kind of image in the form of corruptible man notice now from god to man and from man to birds from birds to four-footed animals From four animals to crawling creatures, that's snakes. Now, I had a whole presentation on this chapter to show you even how today we do things like this. And how we gradually go lower and lower and lower when we leave God out of the picture. Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They went into idolatry, not worshipping the true God, but worshipping false God. But then they also went into sens- sensuality or immorality. Remember now, this is because they rejected the truth. This is what it says. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 26. For their women exchanged a natural function for that which is unnatural. And the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned into desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person. Notice that. Receiving in their own person. The due penalty of their error. In other words, their own bodies experienced God's judgment. Some people have the idea, say, is AIDS and all of that, HIV and all of that a sign of God's judgment? Or, not a sign of God's judgment, but God's judgment. It's more correct to say it's a sign of God's judgment, just like every other. Every other pain and everything else we experience, it's a sign of God's judgment upon us already. We don't have to wait for it, it's already there. You see? It's a manifestation of God's wrath here but then it says it goes into all kinds of immorality look at every one of those items there and you could see it manifested look at even disobedience to parents is there people who break covenants are there gossips are there but now notice the last one they not only do the same, these wicked things Those who practice such things are worthy of that. They don't only do the same, notice, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Every time you watch a pornographic movie, that's what you're doing. Every time you view pornography, you're giving hearty approval to those who practice it. That's what he's talking about. Every time we look at things that are violent, just because they're violent, we're given hearty approval of it. It's a sign we've rejected the truth somewhere along the line. Something that God has said to you or to me, we've rejected. And that's why we're free to do that. This is a terrible indictment. Now, you know, we could take weeks just going through each one of these. But this is the reason why God's wrath is being poured out upon humanity right now. This is why we still have idolatry. This is why we still have sensuality. This is why we have immorality. Why it's on the crease, Because man is rejecting the light of God. You see? And the sad thing is, they're rejecting it in the churches, but they don't know it. You have churches who have thousands of people who go to it, but the light they're getting is darkness. And people feel free to live the kind of life they want without any kind of accountability to God because God loves you and he has the best plan for your life. He accepts you just as you are. You can stay just as you are. That's not the gospel. That's not light. That's not truth. That's what he's talking about. Then we have the wrath of God inflicted. This is another description for it. The term that is used in these verses is God gave them up. That's quite a statement. God giving them up. He gave them up in three areas. First, the body, in verses 19 to 24. Gave the body up to uncleanness because they changed the glory of God into idolatry. In other words, that's what they wanted to do, God's judgment upon them was you do it. Now here's the principle. God's judgment many times is simply to allow you to do what you want to do. That's why with the homosexuality he says the sin, the judgment came upon their own bodies. You see? But he also gave them up he gave up their heart to vile affections. Because they changed the truth of God into a lie. They changed the truth of God and that's happening today. That has to do with the emotions, the body, the physical, the heart, the emotions, the mind, the intellect. Gave the mind over to a reprobate mind. Because they gave up the knowledge of God. They didn't want the knowledge of God So they got the knowledge of evil and immorality and corruption and so on. And so you see a picture of the total person, body or emotions if you want, and intellect. All all given up by God to do what they want to do. That's God's judgment. Allowing a person to do what they want to do. That's a sign of judgment. Verse 32 says this: "And although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Inner knowledge from God tells them that their ways deserve judgment, but they persist in evil in spite of this knowledge and fellowship with those who do evil as well." That's what he's saying. It just turned around upside. they know it. They keep company with those who do it and they do it themselves. You see, it has the idea of sinning vicariously. Give hearty approval to those who practice them. Sinning through others, although you're not doing it yourself, you're rejoicing in it as you see it being done by others. Sinning vicariously. But now he goes to what we call the moralist, the person who, you know, say I'm a good person. This is talking about the Jews now. In chapter 2. He condemns, he shows that the heathen is condemned. They knew the truth, but they turned against it. They turned to the side. They rejected it. Now they come to what we call the moralist, those who have instructions and still not following it. And they are condemned first by... Their own judgment. His very morality increases guilt. Now let's, as you go through this, be thinking about yourself. Be thinking about Christians. Alright? Because that's the application here. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. That's what the Jews are doing. For in that which you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practices the same thing. That you look at them poor guys over there and you condemn them, but you do the same thing. You might do it in a different way, but you do the same thing. That's what he's going to demonstrate now. He's condemned by the judgment of God. In verse 2 he says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Notice, rightly falls. It is just. It is right. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now we like to believe that, eh? You see, all them sinners out there, Judgment of God, and we're doing some of the same things and think we can escape it. Paul says, "No, no, you're not going to escape it." Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience? He's saying, "Hey, the benefits that you have is because of God's grace and God's goodness towards you. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God's leads you to repentance? that was the intention of god's ble- that is the intention of god's blessing people to lead them to faith in him but sometimes we take his blessings and use it against him but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart you are storing up notice now because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's one of the most awful and awesome statements in the Bible. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is what I call the bank of God's wrath. To those... No, verse... um, Am I... Verse 6, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor, immortality, eternal life. Now he's speaking about a whole lifestyle, not just one or two acts here. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first and also of the Greek. Notice, the Jew first. Why? Because they were the first ones who had the gospel preached to them. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no, what? I don't have the idea. Partiality with God. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law. Will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law. Will be judged by the law. No one will escape judgment. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God. But the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law that's where the conscience comes in these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, my gospel, God will judge the secret of men's thoughts and thoughts through Christ. He's saying here, no one is going to escape the judgment. Either those who have the light and... Uh, the, 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 he's, going, he's talking about the ordinances here, the law, and those who don't have the law. All are going to be judged alike. All of them. Because they're committing the same kinds of sin. And so he says, you're going to be... Um, you condemn by the judgment of God and God's judgment is going to be according to truth in verse 2 according to deeds in verse 6 according to light in verses 12 through 15 and according to the person of Christ in verse 16 this is how judgment will take place according to truth according to deeds according to light according to the person of Christ that's how judgment will take place everything is covered Now he comes specifically to the legalists here. Now he's going to explain a little bit more about the privileges of the Jews and to show how they're going to be judged. Now this is where we fit into the picture even more. He will be judged according to his privileges. Paul is going to tell them the law cannot save. This is what he says. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, let me, just for application's sake and to save some time, let me put the application in right now. So I'm going to paraphrase this, all right? You could look at it. But if you bear the name Christian and rely upon the Bible and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the Bible, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a correct of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the Bible in, in the Bible the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say, you Christian, that one should not commit adultery, do you? Commit adultery? You, Christian, who say you abhor idol, idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the Bible through your disobeying the Bible, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among unbelievers because of the way you live. That's what he's saying. That's the application to Christians. How is have this here. Just as it's written oops do I have a quote on your text no Okay, I'm probably bringing it up alright that's the quote actually for the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you you see in other words the Jews were saying that they were the people of God but they were living just like the pagans and they're not going to escape God's judgment alright Just because they were privileged. They had the word of God. They had the oracles of God. They had the law of God. Just like Christians say. We got the Bible. We know more than all these other people. And so on. But then he also condemns them. Because of his practice. He says circumcision cannot save. The morality of the uncircumcised Jew. Condemns the morality of the circumcised Jew. Verse 25. For indeed circumcision. Remember now circumcision was the mark of being a true Jew. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are transgressed of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It's just like saying you could hold up your hand, you could walk down the aisle, you could sign the paper. But that doesn't save you. You go out and live just like you lived all before. You're still condemned. Just because you're a member of the church. That doesn't make you a believer. So, if the uncircumcised man... If the non-Christian man keeps requirements of the law and he does what is good, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will not he judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgression of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Paraphrase for us for he is not a christian who is one outwardly nor is baptism that which is outward in the flesh it has to do really with the heart whether your life has been changed so he says even the practice of those who have so many privileges condemns them as well he's also condemned by his position verse 28 for he is not a jew who is one Outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is is one inwardly, and circumcision circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from man, but from God. He's saying your inheritance, your birth inheritance, cannot save. You cannot claim that you're saved just because all your families. Your parents and grandparents and everybody else has been coming to Calvary Bible Church or any other church. It has to do with what God has done in your heart. Not what you've done outwardly. That's the point. Right? So his privileges could actually here also be a reason for their condemnation before God. He goes on to talk about his promises now, this is a huge chapter here. He talks about the fact that argument cannot save, because the Jew wanted to argue that they promised to Abraham being the children of God, but he says that cannot save either. let me read these verses because it's so important to get the words. In fact, would you all read it please for me? Freedom that you may be in and jailing and jailing jailing in your, in your and the s- male oh. and the righteousness what shall we say? The God who attracts us a is, is it? Paul is simply saying you could argue all you want. It's no use. It doesn't affect the case at all. Your arguments cannot save you. And these He's talking to people now who supposed, who saw themselves as being the people of God because they had the law. Alright? And so, he comes in verse 9 now in chapter 3 to the general charge. He says, What then? Are we better than they? Talking about the Jews and the, and the Gentiles. Is the Jew better than the, the Gentile? No. He says, Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That's a general charge. All under sin. Here is a written indictment to them in the scripture. In verses 10 through 18, he says, a man is depraved in character. This is what he says. As it is written, there is none righteous. What Paul is doing now is saying that what I have just said is backed up by scripture. He's validating what he says by the word of God, quoting the Old Testament. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. That's indictment. All under sin. Man is depraved in character. That's the charge. Psalm 14. Backs it up as well. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men. To see if there are any who understand. Who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Whether they have become. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. That's quite an indictment isn't it? Remember now, Paul is presenting his case to show that all man needs the righteousness of God. And he's doing a great job. See, when you read verses like this, that's why when you hear the idea about man seeking God today, you have little scripture to show that man seeks God. You have scripture showing that man is not seeking God. They're running away from him. That's why when you hear about having seeker-sensitive services, I don't know where they get a biblical basis for that. But man is not only depraved in character, man is depraved in speech. Their throat is an open sepulcher, an open grave. With their tongues they are deceiving, lying. The poison of asps, that's a snake, poison is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Sound like you're talking about Bahamians down B Street. Alright? So man's character is depraved, man's speech is depraved. Man is depraved in conduct. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. I mean it looks like he's describing Bahamian culture. But that's the condition of man. Man is depraved in character, he's depraved in speech. He's depraved in conduct. And so the verdict is given in verse 19. Please read that for me. So he clearly says here the law cannot justify. The law cannot make anyone righteous. The Jews thought it could. But it couldn't. So the verdict is no flesh justified. That's the character. They have no defense. Their mouth is stopped. That's the speech. All the world is guilty. That's their conduct. And so every defense that they have brought up has been shot shot down By Paul No their character, their speech, their conduct all condemned by God. They have no grounds to say anything that will help their case before God and deny that they need the righteousness of God to stand before God. And so we could say this by Adam came the entrance of sin. By Moses came the knowledge of sin. That's the law. But by Christ came the removal of sin. That's how we could end that particular passage right there. By Adam came the entrance of sin. By Moses came the knowledge of sin. By Christ came the removal of sin.